I think you should have been recording the past 30 minutes. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. That would have been... No, that would have been bad. <laughs> Straight up canceled. Welcome to this episode of History Told by Idiots. They may hear a squeak in the background. We promise our dog is not dying. <laughs> also, you remember a- me? <laughs> I, used, I used to do this thing. <laughs> and now he's back. Tyrell Miller, President 2030. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a, that's a terrible idea. 20, whatever it is, 2020. As of the time that we're recording this, uh, the Capitol is currently on fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not, been an interesting Not actually day. on fire, but pretty damn close. <laughs> yeah. It's been an interesting day. <laughs> oh, God. God, it's been an interesting year. Yeah. And apparently 2021 is going to be a <laughs> Six days into They're it. They're like, it's going to be so much better. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. On old Christmas, the Capitol's on fire. <laughs> I think it was Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson that said, just because you put a one at the end of something doesn't make it that much better. <laughs> <laughs> how are all of y'all out there in listener land? It's not like we can listen to your responses, but how are you? You can tell us on our social media. Yeah, you can tell us how you are. So, welcome back, and Josh and I... I can't do it. Tell us, tell us how bad your 2020 was. Yeah. Uh, Josh and I are not dead, and Tyrell is back, so it's it's a good day. I had my guts ripped open, but I am quite well now. She did. Josh had his leg taken apart, but he's he's okay. <clears throat> it's fine. We're fine. 2020 was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my friends from Cobra Kai are going to kick your ass, man. <laughs> <laughs> If you've not watched Cobra Kai Season 3, if you've not binged to that, then what even is wrong with you? I haven't done it yet. Well, what even is wrong with you? No, you've got to do that. So, In the two months I've been off work, we've been watching Mando, Cobra Kai, we finished Breaking Bad, Sabrina, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Which had a terrible ending which that I don't even want to talk about. Terrible ending. <laughs> Worst ending of a show yes. that I have seen in a long, long time. Like I'm, I'm one of the people that's incredibly lucky to have been able to keep my job this whole year. But I'm a little jealous that I didn't get that much time off. <laughs> I kept my job, but <laughs> actually, all of us did. We all, we all did. three kept our jobs. We, yeah. we just got hurt, which stinks, <laughs> but you know, gives you some TV time at least. So before Christmas, we sat down and decided we were going to do a murder episode that was sort of themed around Christmas. And then I had surgery, and so it, it never happened. It never happened. But you know, murder is fun year-round. <laughs> <laughs> Quote. 
Me. <laughs> no, murder is interesting year-round. Of course, it's obviously not good. Please don't go take that and be like, well, this podcast told me that I could go kill people. Well, yeah, That's right. not what we're saying. Do we're saying that it's interesting year-round. The, uh, the heaps of dirt and the shovels in Tessa's backyard. <laughs> and the axes. Yeah. Don't just pay no attention Don't to that. Don't pay any mind to those. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Murder is interesting to read about year round, especially when it's like you know around Christmas time. It's Christmas. It's Christmas murder. It's festive murder, and so we decided that we were going to bring you some holiday murder cases. But then, you're a mean one, Mister <laughs> <laughs> <Mr>. Grinch. <laughs> Then obviously we didn't get to record it, but we figured that you would still enjoy it, so... Yeah. We're going to tell you about some not-so-silent nights. Okay, educate us. Educate Yeah, and this is going to be interesting, because I know what you're going to say, yeah. but he doesn't. Yeah. Christmas murders. Christmas murders. <laughs> the best kind. The best kind. The best of kind. <laughs> you serious, Clark? <laughs> The best way to spread Christmas cheer is killing loud for all to hear. <laughs> the best way to spread Christmas cheer is spread their blood. Spread their blood. Yeah. That's dark. Spread their brains across the snow. Jesus. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to educate you all on the Ortega family. And when Tessa suggested this episode, she sent a bunch of these to me. And she was like, hey, pick one. And I was like, okay. And so I was like, yeah, whatever, whatever. Oh, flamethrower. Flamethrower? <laughs> flamethrower. Plus, I've never heard of this case. And apparently it was a big deal. It was the Ortega family massacre. But on December 24th, 2008. Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. The Ortega family invited all five of their adult children and their families to their home in Covina, California. It was going to be a very festive time. Big family. It was a low crime community, 22 miles east of Los Angeles, California. Pre-COVID, so everybody could meet and hug and, you yeah. know, whatever. Do all of the fun things. Do whatever. You know, all the stuff that we used to be able to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the Ortega family loved Christmas so much. It was their favorite time of year because they got to spend it with their two eldest sons, James and Charles, and their daughters, Leticia, Alicia, and Sylvia. That Christmas Eve, not like any of in the past because they played poker. That was usually the family's go-to game was poker. And the party was in full swing when the doorbell rang. And what unfolded next was incredibly gruesome, quote one of the L.A. reporters. Shortly after the doorbell sounded, police received a 911 call from Nortega's neighbors. The caller cried, come immediately, they're burning the house down. And I'm assuming from the neighbor's point of view, it was a party going out of control, I'm yeah. assuming, is what they was thinking, and the house was burning down. Uh-huh. The fire department was dispatched to Ortega's house, but the calls kept coming in. Some even reported that they heard shooting coming from the house, and when police arrived at the scene, it was total chaos. The lieutenant of the L.A. Fire Department said when he arrived, he could describe it only as an apocalyptic scene. Oh, the only Ortega family member that the police could locate was Leticia, who had managed to escape the fire with her husband and eight-year-old daughter to make it to the neighbor's house. Leticia's daughter, however, had been shot, so the family had already made their way to the hospital. When the police were told what had happened, they were shocked, obviously. Someone dressed as Santa had unexpectedly arrived at the Ortega home and began shooting 
In the middle of the investigation of the chaotic scene, police also received a tip from a neighbor. She and her husband had seen a car leaving the cul-de-sac around 11.45 that night. After putting out an all-points bulletin on the car, police started shifting through the Ortega's scorched home. And here's where things get gruesome. They found bodies burned beyond recognition, which were later identified as the missing Ortega family members. Total of nine people were found. Dang. While police were busy investigating this Christmas Eve massacre, investigations in the neighborhood of Salmar, California, were called to the home of Brad Parada, who returned home from a Christmas party to find his brother, Bruce, lying dead in a pool of blood. Once they arrived, police found a single shot from a 9mm handgun to Bruce's head. There was a 9mm pistol in Bruce's lap, and there was a second 9mm on the floor. Police also found another bullet hole in the ceiling, and they believe there might have been a second shooter at the scene. Hmm. Looking into Bruce's past, which all of a sudden we know was very screwed up, investigators discovered that he had an ex-wife named Sylvia Ortiz, whose divorce from Bruce was finalized on December 18th, 2008. So, just a few days before the holiday, police dug deeper into the divorce to find out if it had anything to do with Bruce's death, and they realized Sylvia's maiden name was... Ortega. Ortega. Oh. Which meant she was one of the Ortega's siblings who had been killed on Christmas Eve. Police didn't think their deaths were purely coincidence, and they believed their suspect was still at large. And then when they performed autopsies on the body from the Ortega house... They found all the victims had been shot at least once with a 9mm handgun. Hmm. Coincidence? Coincidence? I think not. I think not. <laughs> On Christmas days, police interviewed Letitia, who said that despite the Santa Claus costume, beard, and hat, she could identify the shooter. Her sister's ex-husband, Bruce Pardo. Investigators then went back to Brad's house, where Bruce was found dead and searched his car which ended up being the same car that Ortega's neighbors described seeing on the street after the murders. Inside the vehicle, police found a Santa suit and thousands of rounds of ammunition. The car had also been booby-trapped to explode once the Santa suit was removed. <laughs> oh, which yeah. the vehicle did explode. Oh, my God. <laughs> but no one was injured, thank God. Once Bruce's autopsy was finished, investigators were able to conclude he had committed suicide and there was no second shooter. The autopsy also revealed he had horrific third-degree burns on his hands and arms, and part of the Santa pants had melted to his body. Ouch. Police believe he didn't intentionally plan to kill himself as he left no note. Around the same time, a man reported a mysterious car parked in front of the Pasadena home. Police ran the plates and found the car had been rented by Bruce Pardo. Though the car wasn't rigged, it was packed with supplies including a computer, clothes, water, food, and maps of the U.S. and Mexico. Oh, so he definitely planned to bail out. Right, yep, and so it's what the police believed. Police did believe at this time then that Bruce had been planning to escape to Mexico after his massive killing spree. Bruce's getaway car was also parked about 500 feet from the house of Scott Nord, Sylvia's divorce attorney. Police believe Bruce might have been planning on also murdering Scott, who resided over their somewhat contentious proceeding. Mm. Quote, in June of 2008, Bruce Pardo was ordered to pay $1,785 a month in spousal support. When his divorce was finalized shortly before the holiday, the spousal support ended up being waived as at the time he had lost his job. 
In July 2008, Bruce's employer realized Bruce had been fraudulently billing clients for hours he didn't actually work and was fired. A reporter said the divorce shattered Bruce Pardo. It became his obsession, and Bruce began to plot ways to get back at Sylvia. I think that he decided that he wasn't going to kill her, but he was going to kill everything that she loved and take it, wipe it off of the face of the earth, dealing with an outstanding American citizen. During his Christmas Eve killing spree, Bruce pulled out a homemade flamethrower to spray 18 gallons of gasoline into the house once he ran out of bullets. But Bruce didn't realize there was an open flame somewhere inside the house, which led to a massive explosion that left him horrifically burned. Instead of driving to kill Sylvia's attorney, Bruce then went to his brother's where he killed himself because the police believe he killed himself of how badly he was burned. Couldn't deal with the pain. Bruce's neighbor said, I still wonder if the suit hadn't lit how the story would have ended. It may have been a much different ending. In 2016, Letitia told Oprah, I can't do anything to change what happened. I can only focus on the future. This is what he's done. Enough. I'm not going to allow you to continue to consume us with your evilness. You don't want the anger to live within you day to day and grow, just like it did with this monster. So that was the Ortega massacre. Sounds like a great guy. Sounds it like is. a fantastic guy. Oh, yeah. Always. So you- in all, there were three victims died from gunshot wounds alone, and four others died from a combination of gunshot wounds and fire. Two other a, deaths a stemmed story. from the fire alone. Heartwarming. Heartwarming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> At least 13 children were orphaned after the massacre and two others lost one parent. I'm going to show you this picture and you can tell me your initial okay. thoughts about it. I don't know, but uh, the, the, the guy on the left and the lady on the right... They look like they're zombies or vampires. Oh, they or do. Something. They do. <laughs> I don't know if it's just because the picture's so whitewashed or what, but what about this one? This girl. She definitely looks like the Bride of Frankenstein. Absolutely. She looks pissed. Yeah. And this dude looks a little bit out of it. He looks like Ernest T. Bass from the Andy Griffith Show. He does. <laughs> Doesn't he look a little smug and smirk? A little bit. Doesn't he just look like he knows something that nobody else knows? I'm going to post this picture so you guys can see it too, and you can tell me what you think. The man that I'm referring to is the back row. He's the second from the right. This is the Lawson family, and this photograph was taken a few days before Christmas Day. And it tells sort of a story, uh, maybe a little bit of a clue as to what happened with the actual horrific event that took place after. So this is the year 1929. There's a tobacco mm. farmer by the name mm. of Don't Charles. Play with me. Playing footsie, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you could play footsie with me, and I wouldn't know. Mine's numbs. So. Right. <laughs> right. Tobacco farmer Charles Lawson. Charles and his family are a working class family, a working class background. They don't have a lot of money. He grew up in a sharecropping family. He saved enough money that they could buy like a little ramshackle 200-year-old farmhouse. But they did not really have money to spare as far as niceties like having professional portraits taken or new clothes for said portrait. In 1929, he made the decision to take his wife and his seven children into town for a studio portrait. So they went into Germantown, North Carolina, And he bought new clothes for everybody, for his wife, Fanny, their four daughters, and three sons to wear for this photograph. So they go into the studio, and standing in the picture, 
from the back left are 16-year-old, I'll turn this so you guys can see it too, 16-year-old mm. Arthur Lawson, his sister Marie, who is 17, and then their parents. So that's Charlie and his wife Fanny. And she's holding their baby, Mary Lou, who is four months old. And then you have Carrie, who is 12, Raymond, who is two, Maybelle, who is seven, and James, who is four. So you look at the picture, things look a little odd because... Did you memorize all that or was there actual time? Oh, no, so, I did not memorize okay, that. Okay, <laughs> because I was about to, like, be super, super pleased. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the picture, they don't necessarily look like the happiest family on the face of the earth. Dad is kind of staring up into space with this really smug look on his face. They get their portrait taken and they kind of just go along with life, right? Mm -hmm. So on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1929, Marie, who is the 17-year-old girl that's in the back of the picture, gets up early to make a Christmas cake. She bakes like two separate layers and puts them in the pans and she's icing them. They're getting ready for their like happy Christmas festivities for their family on their farm. The two middle girls get up, that's Carrie and Maybelle, and they decide that they're going to leave their house and go visit with their aunt and uncle. So on the property, there's also an old tobacco barn. Mm -hmm. And behind the tobacco barn, their father, Charlie, was waiting with a shotgun. He was 43 years old at the time. He shot his daughters, and then when they didn't die immediately, he bludgeoned them to death to finish them off. And he put their bodies inside the barn. Now, they lived in rural North Carolina where hunting was a thing that was a necessity in order to stay alive. Uh -huh. And so it was not unusual to hear shots going off outside, oh. nor was it unusual to be hunting on Christmas Day. For a lot of folks, it is a tradition to go hunting on Christmas Day. Yeah. Right. So she still is around here. Right. Yeah. It still is. And so she didn't really think anything differently when she heard the shots ring out. He goes to the house. And finds Fanny sitting on the porch. He shoots her. And then he moves inside where Marie is. And she begs when she sees the gun. But she is shot. And then the two younger brothers, James and Raymond, run to hide. Charlie shot Marie. And then he found the boys and shot them as well. And then finally, he bludgeoned the baby to death. So her cause of death was a fractured skull. Later, neighbors come and find the seven bodies. Oddly enough, he had posed them with their arms crossed over their chests and rocks underneath their heads, which oh. they didn't really understand, and I don't really understand either. Of course, I'm not a murder expert. Right. But he had pillowed their heads on rocks. Now, there was one more son, Arthur, and Arthur had been sent on an errand the night before, the killing by Charlie. So he is the only one who survived out of this whole family because his father sent him away. Arthur would mm. have come back home. So we know who dad's favorite was. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Arthur would have come back home and arrived to find his mother and all of his siblings dead. He raised the alarm and people came and began gathering at the Lawson home, but Charlie was missing. Within hours... The folks had gathered and were getting ready to search for him when they heard a single gunshot ring out from the nearby woods and everybody knew that Charlie had ended his own life. But they did go to look for him. And when they did, they found his body and letters that he had written 
And also, there was footprints. He had walked, like, paced around and around this tree for so long that there was a worn path. Because he had paced it for so long before he shot himself. Charlie's letters did not explain a single thing as to why he actually killed his family. For a long time, people speculated, but they didn't really know. But they had a large funeral, like a mass funeral for all of the members of the Lawson family. And actually, it attracted hundreds of tourists because people like the dark and macabre, and they always right. have. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's just yeah. like when people yeah. used to attend public executions. Mm-hmm. So tons of people came to the funeral. Arthur went on to lead a mostly normal life, and then he was eventually killed in an automobile accident. So, hmm. yeah, he was killed in 45. So the one remaining child was killed. But he was married and had a wife and four kids of his own at the time. Hmm. But Charlie's brother ended up taking the homestead over and then turning it into a museum. And they even, like, glassed in Marie's Christmas cake and left it on display oh. and everything. They had to glass in all of that stuff, though, because people were coming and stealing souvenirs. Like, they stole stole pieces of wood. They stole the raisins off of the cake. That's why they glassed it in. They stole whatever they could get their hands on. They stole, like, because they for real left, like, the bloody linens on the beds. The baby's crib still had the bloody linens in it. Oh, God. Um, Mrs. Lawson's dress that she was wearing, they left all of that stuff there, and people started stealing it. They would, like, go and cut out parts of the mattresses, and... Yeah, people are a little nuts. So, he operated that sort of, like, sideshow attraction deal for a few years after they were killed, and then eventually they did quit, and they buried the cake with Marie... Yeah, it's a little strange. It's a little weird. It's a little strange. What do we know about Charlie Lawson? Why did he do what he what he did? Well, in 1990, a book came out. This book, some information was given by a cousin of the family, and it told a 60-year-old secret. So Stella Lawson Bowles confessed that she overheard her mother and other Lawson women talking at the funeral about how Fanny which was the mother, Mm -hmm. had confided in them that she had discovered incest in her family before Christmas. Oh. oh. Yeah. Fanny had long since known about and agonized over a relationship, but I wouldn't really call it a relationship. I would more likely call it abusive situation between her husband, Charlie, and the 17-year-old daughter, Marie. Oh. And Marie, several weeks before Christmas had confided in her friend Ella Mae Johnson that she was pregnant with her father's child. Oh, no. So another story came out. The Lawson family's neighbor, Sam Hill, he had heard that Charlie had forced himself upon his daughter, and she became pregnant from the rape. And he had warned her that if she told her mother or anyone else, quote, this is what he said, there would be some killing done. Oh. So now... Knowing that, when you go back and you look at this picture taken on Christmas Day, you now know that this man has brought his entire family, Mm -hmm. put them in new clothes that they couldn't afford, and brought them for a studio portrait that they couldn't afford, because like three days later he was going to go and murder all of them in cold blood, because he had raped his daughter and gotten her pregnant. (laughs) Wow. And it makes you look at that a little differently. Yeah. Just a little bit. Look at that smug look on his face. Yeah. I swear. Like, knowing good and well what 
he's going to do. He knows exactly what he's going to do. There's his plan all along. And it just makes me angry. Yeah. What a jerk. So that's the story of the Lawson family. There's a lot of stuff, theories and speculations and whatnot. The book, by the way, was called White Christmas, Bloody Christmas. It was published in 1990. And there was another book by the same author called The Meaning of Our Tears. I'm going to tell you one more story. Woo! That's Tysfoot again. Yeah. <laughs> Mine are well over here, under a blanket. Oh, no, see? Now you, now okay, you now she got both of us. Oh, shit. Oh, oh what, what, phone. What, phone. what'd be that? That was my fun. It's fun. Man, this episode's going to be funny. It's going to be like a funny episode. <laughs> it's going to be a funny, <laughs> horrific, <Yeah>. tragical. <laughs> Tess wanted to be all serious, but no, nope, Ty showed up. Absolutely hey. not. <laughs> it's going to be a funny murder episode. Ty shows up and everything derails. Everything oh, derails. <laughs> Let me read you a little snippet of this okay. folk song. Okay. Snippet. Folk song. That's one of those words that just... Snippet? Yeah, I don't know why, but it just... Why is so many snippet. folk songs are inspired by murder? They are, though. <laughs> they are. Murder <laughs> ballads, man. Yeah. Murder ballads. Yeah. But murder it's ballads really neat. Murder ballads fascinate me. There's a murder ballad about Ellen Flannery. Did you is know really? that? That's yeah. why she sleeps oh. on the couch mm-hmm. and I sleep in the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> With the door closed. <laughs> yeah, there is a murder ballad about Ellen Flannery. And if you don't know the story of Ellen Flannery and Floyd Frazier... Go it's, back and listen they to should, like, Lord episode Lord three yeah. or something yeah, like that. That was one of the first ones. <laughs> yeah, it's a sad but very fascinating story. Yes. And there is a murder ballad written about it. So you can go listen to us talk about it. Then you can look the murder ballad up. And then go to the YouTube channel and we'll go visit our graves. Yeah. So shameless, maybe. Do I care? <laughs> shameless, <laughs> shameless plug. <laughs> I'm not going to read all of this to you because it would ruin the entire story, and I don't want to do that. But I do want to read you the first verse: "The Ashland Tragedy." Dear father, mother, sister, come listen while I tell all about the Ashland tragedy of which you know full well. Twas in the town of Ashland, all on that deadly night, a horrible crime was committed, but soon was brought to light. So Ashland, Kentucky sits right on the Ohio River in sort of eastern Kentucky, kind of. Northeast. Boyd County. Its population during the last census was over 20,000, 20,382. But we're going way back to 1881, and it was only around 3,280 people at that time, which is still more than Whitesburg has right now, (laughs) even today. But still, among those 3,000 or so folks lived the Gibbons family, comprised of Mother Martha, Father John Gibbons, and then they had their children, 11-year-old Sterling, 14-year-old Fanny, and 17-year-old Robert. But they were the typical family, an average household in a not very exciting town. I've never been to Ashland, but... I was there in the last few months. Were you? Mm Mm-hmm. Anything happen? We went and picked up a dog. Yeah? Yeah. Was it a very exciting place? Not really. Yeah, well, it wasn't. <laughs> it was not exciting in 1881 either, except for maybe on this night. Hmm. That's a terrible segue. <laughs> you could do better than that. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna. <laughs> it was a not so silent night. <laughs> Is that better? She's been out storytelling for a year now, so... (laughs) Oh my gosh, you would make a better segue? It wasn't a very exciting town. But on this night... Well, now you're trying too hard. Oh, God. Anyway, so... (laughs) We know that Robert, the eldest Gibbon son, 
had lost a leg a few years before in an accident with a freight car, but we don't know particularly what happened, like what kind of run-in with a freight car he had. But anyway, he ain't he, doing much running anymore. No, he's not. He is not. <laughs> but he and Fanny, who was 14, but she's described as matured beyond her years. She developed quickly. And because of that, the men in town had already had their eyes on her because she was beautiful. And not only that, she was like sweet and charming and had a wonderful, just great, bubbly personality. And unfortunately, there are creepers now, and there were creepers back then too. But anyway, Fanny had a lot of friends in Ashland. When you made them mad, did they explode? Ah, Minecraft. Uh, Minecraft. Minecraft jokes. Boo. Boo. (laughs) She had lots of friends in Ashland. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants your Minecraft jokes. (laughs) Nobody wants your dead dry since you ever got. One of her best friends was a 15-year-old girl named Emma Carrico, better known as Emma Thomas from her stepfather's last name. But she lived... Legit, just right across the street from the Gibbons family. On the day that our story really starts taking place, December 23rd, 1881, John Gibbons was out of town on a business errand, and he was out of town quite frequently, so this was nothing new. And so Martha and the youngest son, Sterling, decided to head across the river into Ohio to visit some of Martha's relatives for Christmas. Before Martha left for Ohio, she went across the street to Emma's house and asked Mrs. Thomas if Emma could come and spend the day with Fanny and Robert and then stay through the night to keep them company. So Emma and Fanny were excited to just have a little sleepover, you know, have some girl time with Robert because he was just there with his one leg. So he was just there. He's not going anywhere anyway. They decided they were just going to have a good, fun evening, and so they spent it, you know, being girly and giggling and gossiping and having a good time. And then they fell asleep, and it was all fine. On the morning of December 24th, Emma's mother had woken early, around 4 a.m., God bless her, to start on her household chores. Sometimes I'm just going to sleep at 4 a.m. So she was, like, shuffling around in her home, She glances out the window across the street. She sees the Gibbons house. She mentally notes that it's all dark. And so she's like, okay, they're still asleep. That's great. And then she goes about her business. At 6 a.m., she looks out the window again. And she sees flickering. Like flickering light. And she sort of stops and looks at it and then realizes, oh my God, the house is on fire. And so she takes off running into the yard, screaming, trying to raise the alarm that the Gibbons house is on fire. The neighbors wake, and they sound the alarm, and so all the townsfolk come to help. They start dousing the flames. They know that there are kids inside. And so they quench the fire enough for some men to enter in and bring out the kids. So they pull them out. They know that they're dead before... They bring them out. They're dead. They did not, however, die from smoke inhalation or the fire itself. Three physicians arrived from town and confirm that all three teenagers have died from having their skulls crushed. Oh. Yeah. There was also evidence that both girls had been brutally raped. As for the fire itself, it was Mm. obviously Mm -hmm. set to cover up a crime. Yeah. They know that something has happened, but the hard part is figuring out 
who killed them and why. Because they live in this town where nothing ever happens. Everybody's nice to each other. Everybody knows each other. Like, who could do this horrible thing? Everybody's decent folks, except for they're actually not. <laughs> but wait, there's a shadow lurking. <laughs> yeah. More than one. Yes. So when dawn breaks the next day, which is Christmas Day, the remains of the home are still smoldering, but they search it, and they find among the ashes and ruin bloody sheets and pillows, an axe, a crowbar, the knot clothing of the teenage girls. Both the axe and crowbar are covered in blood and hair. So they collect the evidence, and it goes to be examined. In the meantime, on the 26th of December, they hold a funeral of sorts, a service for the three teens at the Methodist Episcopal Church. And there are so many folks in attendance, because like with the Lawsons, it was a tourist attraction. Mm -hmm. There were so many folks that attended that it was standing room only, and even then folks gathered outside of the church. They buried all three in a common grave in the Ashland Cemetery. But it was said and done, they were buried, but the townsfolk were still outraged because who could have done this horrendous thing? And if they weren't brought to justice, what was stopping them from doing it again? So, the mayor of Ashland at the time was John Means. He called for a town meeting. And during that meeting, they collected over $1,000 in just a few days to hire a private detective. $1,000 was a lot, a lot of money, money. in 1881. Mm-hmm. So when they put out the call for detectives to come in and they advertised that they were going to pay $1,000, many, many detectives from several states came to the call, including Deputy U.S. Marshal Heflin of Maysville, Kentucky, and J.B. Norris from Ohio. J.B. Norris came out with the really like the first theory of what had happened. He was sort of appointed the quote-unquote lead investigator for the case. So he comes out with this theory almost right away that John Gibbons, the father of Fanny and Robert, had to have been the one that killed the children. But there was pretty much no evidence whatsoever to substantiate this claim. Nothing. And then there's also the fact that the two girls were brutally raped. Yeah. So that would have meant that he did that to his own daughter. Firstly of all. But secondly of all, he wasn't there. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But the theory comes out to the public at large. And of course, they go ahead and they jump on the bandwagon. They assume that Norris is correct. They're outraged and they want blood. They want John Gibbons hmm. brought to justice. The Cincinnati Inquirer hops on the bandwagon too, which makes it all the worse. Because it's the largest newspaper in the area. Everybody was clamoring for the arrest of John Gibbons. Wanted posters start popping up everywhere. Marshall Heflin, who is one of the other investigators I told you came from mm -hmm. Maysville, he had his doubts about this theory because he knew that the crime could not have possibly been carried out by one person because one person was likely holding one of the girls down while the other one was being raped, for one thing. And then what about Robert? Somebody would have had to have contended with Robert. So there definitely had to be more than one person involved. And he knew that in order to catch the real killers, that John Gibbons would need to be found and exonerated. So on December 31st, he got his chance and tracked him down. 
Gibbons was in West Virginia on business, and he did not even know what had happened. When Heflin finds him, he gets to break this tragic news that two of his three children are dead. Obviously, John Gibbons is heartbroken, and he and Heflin ride back to Ashland on horseback as fast as they can go with proof that he had been in West Virginia the entire time, so it couldn't possibly be him. Detective Norris was so extremely embarrassed that he left on the first train out of town and never darkened the doors of Ashland again. Hmm. As he should. Exactly. (laughs) And so after this, Heflin became the lead investigator on the case. So, all this is happening. Downtown Ashland, there's a general store called Geiger, Powell, and Ferguson. A man walks in and buys a cigar. Mr. Powell is the one that waits on this man. It was a regular customer by the name of George Ellis. So the polite thing to do when you see a customer is to, like, make small talk with them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how's your day? How's the weather? Blah, blah, blah. Talk about maybe some current events without getting into politics because nobody needs that (laughs) these days. (laughs) So Mr. Powell kind of makes polite conversation with George Ellis, and he says, well... Now that old man Gibbons is in the clear, I wonder who it is it's going to fall on now. Well, Ellis is completely flabbergasted. He turns pale and he starts to shake. He then blurts out something about state's evidence, and then he leaves completely paranoid looking over his shoulders. So that's not shifty at all. No. That's not suspicious at all. That's Hmm. not sus at all. There you go. There you go. (laughs) He then... (laughs) That's the terms that the kids use nowadays. Yeah, that's the terms that the kids use. <laughs> Look at me, kids. I'm hip. Yeah. <laughs> Sus. <laughs> he walks for hours, just agonizing. And then he finally makes this decision. He goes straight to the hotel, to Marshall Heflin's door. He knocks on it. And then inside, he begins to talk immediately. And he's like, I live near the Gibbons house. I was there the night of the fire. I might know something about the murders. And then he asks, what does state's evidence mean? And Heflin basically told him, if someone is guilty of a crime, and they inform on the others, Mm -hmm. the informer would receive a lesser sentence. Usually. Usually. And so after that, George Ellis just breaks, and he opens up like a faucet, Hmm. and starts spewing the talk. And here is what he says verbatim. Mm. Oh. I gotta take a drink before this. Oh boy. Oh boy. A few evenings prior to the 24th, I met Kraft, who stated that he was going to see Fanny Gibbons and take her some black candy, and that he was going to have intercourse with her, and he wanted me to come along. About midnight, the fatal night, we all started, Kraft, Neil, and myself, and when we got to the house, Kraft raised the window with an old axe and stepped in first. Neil followed, and I stayed behind on the porch, and afterwards, I went in. Robbie was first aroused and started to get up when Kraft said, You had better lie still. Kraft then went to the bed where the two girls were sleeping and began to take improper liberties with them. Robbie said, You had better stay away from there when Kraft hit him with the axe. He fell back on the lounge, then plunged forward and fell fully six feet from the bed under the stairs where he was found. The girls screamed when Kraft jumped on the bed and they both said, George Kraft, what are you here for? Emma also started to jump up from the bed when Neil choked her and pulled her onto the floor. She fought him, and I held her while he outraged her. 
Neil then struck her on the head with the big end of the crowbar, and she died instantly after throwing up her hands. Kraft also had some trouble with Fanny Gibbons and called on me to come and help him. He then outraged her and killed her. Neil proposed killing the girls, and after they were dead, I took some coal oil, poured it over the bodies, and set fire to them with a match. We then left the house. Remember how we said that Fanny was really mature for her age at 14? Mm-hmm. Emma was two. She was 15. So apparently, Ellis, Neil, and Kraft had noticed. One day, while they were working in the backyard... Emma passed by, and William Neal said that he was going to have carnal communication with her before Christmas. Hmm. Ellis also confessed that George Kraft had made similar remarks about Fanny Gibbons. So, Ellis confesses this. Both Neal and Kraft are also arrested. All three men are transported to the county jail in Catlettsburg, about five miles away from Ashland, Mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, I don't even, I don't understand this, knowing that he snitched on the other two, they put them all three in the same cell. Oh, no. Yeah. So, of course, the first thing the next morning, Ellis is like, I didn't mean it. (laughs) I need to take my confession back. And he tries to recant this confession, saying it wasn't true, but it was too late. I mean, cat's out of the bag now, bud. (laughs) So, word spreads through Ashland that the killers are in jail, People were so outraged, they wanted justice now. So much so, the officials believed the only way to get the men to trial would be to protect them until then, because otherwise they were going to be killed by an angry mob. So, the court orders the prisoners to be moved to a secure jail in Lexington. They are escorted by armed guard. Hmm. They are put on the Catlettsburg Ferry and headed down the river to Lexington. The townspeople, just overwhelmingly proving them right get on board another steamboat and they try to catch up with the ferry so they can maraud <laughs> it and then go on board and wow. pull the men off. But the ferry fortunately eluded the steamboat and nobody else died that night. Ferry makes a stop in Vanceburg, Kentucky, where reporters were allowed to board and interview the prisoners. Kraft and Neil were like just joking and singing. They denied they had anything to do with it. They wanted to just look all sweet and innocent, and oh, I didn't do anything to those poor children. Hmm. But they did eventually get to the Lexington jail, and George Ellis again tries to claim that his confession was coerced. He says that Heflin held him at gunpoint and forced him to say those things. Huh. Hmm. We know differently, though. So, let's go and kind of skip ahead till January 16th, 1882. The trial for William Neal starts first with presiding judge George N. Brown. Ellis had been charged with the murder of Emma Carrico. Most of the evidence presented was by witnesses. There was this one woman that said that during the early hours of Christmas Eve, she saw the three men walking half a mile from the murder scene. Others would testify that after the murders, they were uneasy whenever somebody brought it up. One of them, Neil, even said that he was worried somebody would suspect him because that's not sus at all. One of the men who helped pull the bodies from the burning house claims that he saw Neil just standing there about 50 feet from the fire, staring creepily, just watching. Oh. Yeah. It's not suspicious. (laughs) It's not suspicious at all. So then, George Ellis takes the stand, and here's what he says. Again, verbatim. Now... 
see if you can hear any differences between the first and now this confession. I've resided in Ashland since May, have been engaged as a laborer at Powell and House's Brickyard most of the time. I am acquainted with the prisoner Neil, also with Kraft. We work together at the Brickyard. I did not see either of them during the day of December 23rd. I saw them later that night. They came to my house and called me. I was in bed and asked what they wanted. Kraft told me to get up. They wanted to see me, so I did so. Put on my clothes and boots and went out to the gate. Kraft said, you must go with us. I asked him where. He said, to the Gibbons, and we will have some fun. I told him, no, it's too late, I won't go. They said, I have to go, and Kraft drew his revolver. Neil said, bring him along, and we started. Already we have differences. Yeah. We got inside the gate at the Gibbonses. Kraft picked up an axe, and Neil got a crowbar from under the porch floor. Kraft prod open the window, and Neil was the first to go in. Kraft next. I did not want to go in, but Kraft drew his revolver and said, Come on, and I did so. They took the axe and crowbar in the house with them. We passed through the front room to the second room, middle room, where the girls and Robbie were asleep. Kraft and Neil went to the bed where the girls were. Kraft took a hold of Fanny Gibbons and Neil of Emma. They stifled the girls by putting their hands over their mouths and choking them. The noise awakened Robbie, who was sleeping on a lounge in the same room. Kraft, who had choked Fanny near to death, left her and struck Robbie in the head with the axe and killed him and then returned to the bed. Neil dragged Emma off of the bed onto the floor, and Kraft ordered me to hold her until Neil accomplished his purpose, which I did. After Neil let her up, she began to raise up, crying, and said she was going home to tell her mother. Neil said, I guess not, and struck her on the head with the crowbar, and she fell back onto the floor dead. Kraft ordered me to come and help him. I went to the bed and put my hand on Miss Gibbons' shoulder, and Kraft outraged her, after which he got the axe and killed her. Kraft then said to me, You have done none of the killing, but you must have a hand in it, and ordered me to get the coal oil and pour it over the dead body of the girls. I did, and Kraft set them on fire, and we left the house. When we got separated, I going home and I don't know where they went, I got home about half past three o'clock, and my wife made me breakfast. I laid down but did not sleep. I heard the cry of fire about half past five when I was at breakfast. I went to the burning house but did not stay long. On the following Sunday morning, when Kraft and I met at the place where the house was burned, Kraft asked me to take a walk. We went out toward the cemetery. He began to talk about the affair and said it must be kept quiet. We met Neil and talked about it. They wanted me to sign a pledge never to tell about it. I told them that I would think on it. They told me I better do better than that, and if I did not do so by the next Saturday night, they would put an end to me. We separated, I went home, and Kraft and Neil went away together. So what's different this time around? Well, says that they threatened him. <laughs> yeah, and the whole signing of the pledge. And... Yeah, all yeah. that fun stuff. Yeah, so he's trying to make himself look... Like, good. Yeah. Now yeah. he's not. Now he's not all like I. You coerced me. I didn't make that confession. Yeah. No, I did make that confession, but they were yeah. going to kill me. Yeah. So I didn't do it. Um, it's not my fault. So this is a strange case. This dude flip flops a lot on on what he says. His case is weird though. It so, sounds to me like that guy's not all there. He's not. Yeah, I yeah. don't think that he was. So in this strange situation, the defense team was headed by Thomas R. Brown which is actually, actually, he was the son of the presiding 
Judge Brown. So that's interesting. But the defense's key witness was George Ellis's wife. She testified that on the night of the murders, she woke up at midnight and 4.30, and her husband had been there both times. She did not believe that her husband left the house that night at all. So while he was being held in jail, his wife visited. Others heard her pleading with George to tell the real truth. Another witness was Oliver Hampton, and he testified that George Ellis had said in front of him and another man that Neil and Kraft were both innocent. The defense also called several character witnesses that testified he was a good man. But they only deliberated, the jury did, for 17 minutes before they found him guilty, and they sentenced him to hang on February 14th, Happy Valentine's Day, 1882. A few days later, George Kraft was convicted also and sentenced to hang on the same day. While in prison, George Ellis gave interviews with Cincinnati newspapers, and he told them a completely different story for the third time. Okay, so we have the one version of the story where he's actively involved, the second story where he was coerced by gunpoint, Uh then there's this one where he pretty much says that he himself hired two black men to help him hold down the girls while he raped both of them, and then to kill the three teenagers. Good lord. (laughs) Yeah. As he left the murder scene, he saw his two friends, Kraft and Neil, walking and decided to blame it on them. But a few days later, after the story hit the papers, he claimed that he had no idea where it came from, and he had never even given an interview to the newspaper. Wow. So, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. June 2nd, 1882, he's found guilty for his part in the murders and sentenced to life in prison because he had cooperated and testified against his co-conspirators. So everybody hoped and prayed this would bring closure and let everybody heal from this terrible ordeal But the people were not satisfied with life in prison for him. Around midnight, a group of 20 men wearing black hoods overtook the engine house of the railroad in Ashland. They ordered the watchman hook up a couple of flat cars to the engine house. They boarded the train, and they forced the drivers to take them to Catletsburg. Around 3 a.m., they arrived across from the jail. They demanded to be let in, but were denied. So they stormed the building, which we have seen today. They dragged George Ellis out and they took him back to Ashland on their train to make him pay for his crimes. Witnesses gathered to watch the hanging, and Ellis just totally appeared calm and collected. He again confessed that it was him, Kraft, and Neil, because so he's back to the first story, Hmm. that murdered the three teenagers, and his only request is that his body was not mutilated. They asked him if he wanted to pray, but he said no, saying that he was ready to die. So they hung him a hundred yards from the burned house from a sycamore tree. And he hung there until the next day when the coroner cut it down. His death was ruled murder by person or persons unknown. And there he is after he was taken down. Oh, wow. From the sycamore. Oh, dude. Wow. Yeah, he's so stiff that he's standing up. Yeah. (laughs) I want you to notice. Kraft and Neil appealed their convictions, and they both won new trials. So while they waited for their new trials, they both gave interviews with national newspapers claiming that George Ellis was crazy. I kind of believe them. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, I kind of believe them. But they claimed that he was crazy and they were innocent. It really didn't work out in their favor still. Fall of 1882. High tensions. Prisoners were moved again from Lexington back to Catletsburg so they could start their trial. Mm -hmm. Governor G.W. Blackburn. He wanted them brought to justice so bad 
that he threatened that he would kill the entire county of Boyd himself if he had to to have the law upheld. Wow. Yeah. He said he said to have the law upheld he would kill the entire county of Boyd. He refused to tolerate mob violence. The one rule we have. So, they take him to Catlettsburg where these people are still so pissed off. And so the attorneys demand a change of venue. So again, we load them back up. Just and now, Lord. and now they don't get their trial until 1883. Good Lord. February. During this time, people were used to swift justice, so this trial was dragged on and on and on, and it left the people to believe, if they don't kill him, we can do it. Let's take it into our own hands. So, Major Allen was a commander of a militia group that was to guard the prisoners as they made their way from Lexington to Grayson in Carter County. They were initially going to transport the two men by train, but Major Allen was worried about traveling through Ashland after hearing about the mob that was obviously gathering. So, he requisitioned a passing steamer to head to Maysville in Carter County. So the steamer's being loaded up with guards, and a train from Ashland arrives with over 200 armed men (laughs) and boys demanding that Neil and Kraft be turned over. Major Allen refuses, and the steamer leaves. The mob gets back on the train, and they follow it along the river. Shortly after taking off, the mob starts firing on the steamer, but militia did not return fire. When the steamer reached Ashland, they were met with a crowd on that shoreline. Uh. The militia obviously did not return fire this time again, but they created a barricade with items from the ship. A group of 20 or so in Ashland stole a ferry boat and then attempted to intercept the steamer again. They get close, they shoot, and now the militia's like, screw it, and they return fire. Most of the men on the ferry jump into the water to avoid being shot, but the Hmm. battle sent people everywhere. Everybody was shooting at everybody, and in the end, four people were dead. (laughs) A relative of the murdered Gibbons children had been shot three times, and there was another woman that was just waiting for a train when she got shot in the thigh. She just had a bad day. She just (laughs) had a bad day. day. So, February 23rd, 1883, we come to trial. The jury deliberated for a scant 10 minutes before they returned, saying one of their jurors was too ill to carry on. Let's postpone it again until the next day. So this time they actually deliberate for real for 21 minutes. They returned a guilty verdict. So they deliberated for 21 minutes and they say they're guilty. This is what Kraft has to say. I can say one thing. I am not guilty of that charge. I did not have time to put all of my witnesses here that I ought to have had. And I consider that I have not had a fair trial, for I know that I am not guilty of that. I never as much laid a hand on them. I never did. You might as well take a little innocent child and hang them as to hang me. The closest I was to Mrs. Gibbons's house that night was when I lay in bed at home asleep. I did not see the house or George Ellis or Bill Neal or any of the children that night. The last time I saw any of Mrs. Gibbons's children was on the Wednesday before that. I saw little Fanny and spoke to her. That was the last time. I was aroused by the alarm of fire. I could, knowing the children were burned up, stand on the scaffold and hold my hand up and swear in the sight of heaven that I did not see those children, Neil or Ellis, that night. I am as innocent as the angels of that thing. 
I never thought of such a thing. I was raised better and had more respect for the people about me. I respected Mrs. Gibbons and her children. I am glad I can stand here and say that I am innocent. It is the truth. It is a put-up job. Gentlemen, the day is coming when I will be found innocent. And then <laughs> Mrs. Gibbons starts crying in the middle of his speech and interrupts him and starts going, My dear children, if only they were here now. His date with the gallows was May 4th, 1883. Kraft had a lot of supporters saying they had evidence that would exonerate him, but nothing ever came from it. So Governor Blackburn did not want the execution to happen on his term, so he delayed it until he went out of office. The new governor came in and was like, October 12th, you're going to swing, boy. <laughs> and that's pretty much what happened. You're going to hang, boy. <laughs> they, brought him, they brought him to Grayson for his hanging, and... The population of the small village was around 1,000, but that week it was more like 3,000 because yeah, they came course. to watch mm -hmm. him hang. Yeah, of course. Yeah. This is kind of sad, though. The night before he was hung, he was kept in a prison cell with a barred window, and his brothers and brothers-in-law gathered around him, and they told stories and sang through the night. The next day, he got up early, and he went with Reverend Pinkerton to the Little Sandy River where he was baptized. And on returning to the jail, people lined the streets to see him, and women handed him flowers because murder groupies, even in the 1800s. <laughs> murder groupies. Mm -hmm. So, after the crowd quieted down that day at the gallows, Kraft gave a speech where he once again proclaimed he was innocent. Then he sang a hymn, Did Christ Die for Sinners Weep, and prayed out loud for God to save his soul. As he stepped onto the trap, he was crying and said, Lord, receive my soul. And with that, door swung, body fell, and he was dead. As for William Neal, they took him back to Grayson on March 3rd, 1885. He stood on the train platform and gave a speech. Farewell, good people. I hope to see you in heaven. I am persecuted to my death by Campbell and Redlin, who persecute themselves and bulldozed that lunatic George Ellis into swearing his lies against me. It is a fearful thing to walk upon the gallows and die for a crime I did not commit. Bear in mind that I will be proved innocent of this charge, just as I say, now I am innocent. I have to be dragged back and hung like a dog for what I did not do. I thank the citizens of Mount Sterling for their kindness. I hope to see you in a better land. Hmm. But guess what? Right as they were about to drop the dude, he gets a stay of execution. Good lord. I know. Does I know. <laughs> Eventually it does. I'm sorry. <laughs> March 28th. 1885, the night before, he has breakfast for dinner, consisting of eggs and bacon with coffee. He gets up the next day. He gives another speech. Ends with, O oh Lord, thou knows I am innocent. Into thy hands I commit my soul. The last words escaped his mouth just before the trapdoor flew open, and he was dead. So they buried him in Catletsburg. There's so many unanswered questions from this story even after our convicted men were long dead because Ellis is obviously crazy. Yeah. Obviously. Kraft and Neil, do you guys think that they actually did it? I guess that's kind of a hard question because we don't have any evidence. Well, since their name popped up in three different versions, uh, you know. Yeah, three out of the four different versions. Yeah, three out of the four different versions. Yeah. Many people clung to the idea that they were actually innocent, but really everyone knew in town that John Gibbons worked out of town a lot, and the killers would have had to have planned. 
it couldn't have just been somebody that came in no, on that day yeah, and, knew. and knew that it had to be somebody. So it had to be somebody that knew. That knew. Yeah, and it was pretty much kind of common knowledge that they were attracted to the two girls. I mean, they yeah. talked about it, you know. So I don't know. I mean, who's to say? It's a it's a sad story. There's so much information about it. If you go out there and look, you can find a whole lot more, believe it or not. Hmm. Because I know that I've given you earfuls. But, like, if you go read about these trials and the way things were handled, yeah, it's pretty insane. Hmm. And so uh, you, should, you should do that. I'm on a Roots website right now. Roots Web is like a genealogy collection. This is a Kentucky, Kentucky Roots Web. But what's sad about it is that in the long run of it all, because of it, more people ended up dying because they got themselves shot and whatnot, trying yeah. to take vengeance yeah. for this case. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Yep. So, there we go. Yep, Some not-so-silent yeah, Christmas nights. That's what we have for you today on History Told by Idiots. A little bit of murder. Hope that you enjoyed it. Murder. <laughs> murder. Murder. I'm glad to be back in the studio with you guys. We're glad to be back and not sick anymore and on a regular flipping schedule. Yeah. <laughs> it's been so difficult. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. Ask me why. Why are you excited? Because we're going to have a New York Times bestselling author on our show. Oh. oh. So just Fancy. be looking forward to that. Wouldn't grow to get that. I'm so excited. <laughs> She knows who she is if she's listening. And we appreciate and love her so much. She's probably not, but... Probably not. But if she is, then we appreciate her. So, okay. Well, that's what I got for you. Woo! You got anything to add? Woo! You got anything to add? Woo! Good night. Woo! Okay. Woo! <laughs> there's, a, there's some owls in here. Woo! Woo! <laughs> you can find us on all of the social media things. You guys know this. You don't need me to repeat it. But we're working on some Teespring stuff because we've had some folks ask us about shirts. Woof, folks. So we're working on that. <laughs> some folks. Folkery. Folks. So this is your first one back in a while, so I'm excited, but love history. Don't burn the White House down. <laughs> Take and two. Love history. <laughs> love your libraries. And love yourself. Don't burn the center of democracy down. Josh. <laughs> What's...